This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Greetings and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that looks at current films and theaters and ties them into other films that you may or may not have heard of and might want to investigate. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arch reporter of the Chronicle Herald. I'm Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer, and I've got a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And this is our 55th episode, Double Nickels on the Dime, and we're going to take a look at the new Marvel Comics Studios adventure, Black Panther, and also take a look at uh, some wonderful advances in African-American filmmaking, both uh, present and past. So stay tuned and dig in your claws right after this. Okay, Stephen, we're back here in the studio to talk a uh, new movie, and this week's movie that everyone, of course, talking about is Black Panther, largely due to its enormous success globally. This is a phenomenon, this film. And, you know, Marvel has done pretty well with its uh, its interconnected films and its superhero, bringing superheroes into the mainstream. Uh, but this is something different. This feels really different in a way that uh, I think it surprised even the people who predicted a big hit. Yeah, I was really happy with this uh, this film and the, the treatment of this character and this particular expansion of the Mar- Marvel Comics universe. Um, it, uh, it it's a character that uh, you know has certainly uh, I would say been a little overdue in being introduced. I, I remember reading Black Panther comics back when they were still pretty fresh in in the uh, in the seventies. As we've t- discussed before, I was more of a DC guy, more into Batman than Spider Man. But uh, I did come across some Black Panther comics, you know, around the age of like ten or eleven. Uh, I don't know how they fell into my hands, but uh, I thought I thought maybe I thought he looked kind of like Batman or something like that with the costume, with the little little kitty ears on top of his head and everything. But but um, I you know I, I like the fact that it was different that it that it uh, showed me sides of life that uh, I wouldn't necessarily see in suburban Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. And uh, and it, it had an edge to it that a lot of comics didn't have at the time. Uh, and obviously, you know, I didn't know the background of how it was inspired and named after the revolutionary, uh, you know, black movement in the United States, uh, which I think was pretty pretty advanced for a comic book company to, to take on uh, back in those days. Uh, so, so it's really long overdue. Um, I think I read years ago, like around the time of Blade, that Wesley Snipes had an interest in bringing Black Panther to the screen, but it never happened for one reason or another. And uh, in in a sense, even though I think that it's uh, been a long time coming, I think I'm glad they waited until they could do it right and have the right director and the right cast. And and, uh, this film works perfectly, I thought. Yeah, I I think so too. I'm a big fan of Ryan Coogler. Uh, He's part of a a wave, I think a new wave of African-American filmmakers who are getting a lot of attention. I think we'll talk about a few of them today. But uh, yeah, his, his, uh, his films, Fruitvale Station in 2008, I believe, and then Creed, which is, is a textbook uh, example of how to reboot old yes. material. I mean, it is a terrific film, a standalone terrific film, but also connected to the Rocky franchise. Uh, and here you've got him uh, tackling an enormous, I mean, this is like a $200 million budgeted uh, superhero film set in a, an Afro-futurist nation of Wakanda in Africa with this fully-fledged culture 
and uh, it is it's something that really special. Uh, basically, the uh, the it's in some ways it reminded me a little bit of Thor and Asgard, this kind of utopian society <laughs> yeah. uh, with where the themes are very much are about you know the 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 troubled is the head that wears the crown, uh, but also family and obligation, responsibility and. Uh, and uh, you know, and, and betrayal within families, you know that that's where where all this this the drama comes from. But uh, but yeah, this is a terrifically cast, a, a lot of fun. This film, uh, I really liked how T'Challa, who is uh, Chadwick Boseman, the lead character, uh, is surrounded by these really impressive women who are uh, are all play a great part in this film. His his uh, his little sister Shuri, played by Letitia Wright, who serves as kind of a cue to his bond. There's interesting. Uh, <laughs> She's fantastic. Uh, espionage yes. elements here, uh, spy movie moments, uh, and this is all, she finds new ways to use vibranium, which is the uh, the element that, uh, the sort of extraterrestrial element that makes, powers their whole country and gives them all this opportunity to uh, to sort of look forward into the future. Uh, she's terrific. Uh, and then there is Lupita Nyong'o who plays T'Challa's ex, and she's recently returned to Wakanda from her work overseas, and she's a spy. And then there's Okoye, uh, Danai Gurira, who is a general in the uh, king's personal guard of spear-wielding warrior women. These are badass characters <laughs> yes. and uh, maybe the the best reason to watch a film that I love all these characters and their interaction and and uh, and the humor and the intensity. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I like the fact uh, that this is the rare Marvel entry that doesn't necessarily rely on superpowers. Uh, although, you know, he, he, the Black Panther of course drinks from the heart-shaped herb and he does have you know, enhanced abilities, but, uh, you know, and, and gets taken on some wild rides <laughs> through the course of the film and, and gets involved in some pretty serious combat uh, later on with the villain who we'll talk about in a sec. But, um, you know, it's, it's uh, maybe, maybe that's why it was in my mind, it was more akin to Batman and that he, it was more about wits and intelligence and, um, and, uh, you know, like a character is kind of present and isn't, doesn't have, have to rely on, uh, you know, a shield or a, a, a hammer or, or you know, yeah. Spidey sense or whatever. Kryptonian powers. Exactly. Yeah. You know, obviously he's got all this amazing weaponry, which I don't, again, I'm the mythology of the whole character is a little um, vague for me. I, you know, I read those comics uh, back in the 70s. I don't know that they had vibranium and all. Yeah, I don't that remember that stuff. being a big deal either. I just remember him being this super cool character who ran around at night in a black costume and, you know, did, you know, you know meted out justice to bad people. And, you know, and then that, that I thought was, was, was amazing. And I, I really like Chadwick Boseman in this, in this part. Uh, I remember really liking him when he played Jackie Robinson uh, in a biopic about the famous uh, uh, black baseball player who was uh, the first African-American to get into the major leagues. Uh, what was that, 42? Was yeah, that? yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And and he, uh, you know, he played this character with a lot of warmth, a lot of humanity, the, the, without turning him into kind of a stiff icon or picture postcard or whatever. And, uh, you know, and he, he has that same sort of juggling act here because obviously, you know, people tend to think of comic book characters, you know, you know, people who are fans know better, but often people think of them as being kind of two-dimensional, you know, like flat on the page sort of thing. And, uh, and he really does bring him to life with this kind of, with this uh, very regal air. I mean, obviously he's a prince uh, and uh, he's, he's got that kind of royal, uh, 
vibe going on, but at the same time, you know, he understands the streets a little bit, and he's uh, and he's got a sense of humor too, which uh, is a pretty pretty rare combination, and it's it's nice to see it kind of meted out in in equal measure over the course of the film, and um, uh, and of course we we do have some other side characters, you know, actors that we're quite fond of, like Martin Freeman and Andy Serkis, kind of show up to facilitate the story, and uh, one review I read talked about how refreshing it is to see the white characters be the ones who you know they're just there to kind of as plot devices yeah no, you know and, and don't necessarily have to be kind of fleshed out you know one guy is the bad arms dealer and the other guy is the cia agent who's just kind of there yeah <laughs> I, I do want to mention though uh, uh i i really like how they managed to find a unified tone to the accents here and the wakandan accents but and you've got andy circus who's really rocking that south african vibe like <laughs> yes. i really bought that he was that's where he's from but i'm not sure about martin freeman's american accent i kept thinking to myself where is he supposed to be from i don't know i, I that kind of bugged me a little bit uh but i always get hung up on accents um but you know who is amazing in this is mike B. Jordan as the villain. Yes. Uh, he is one of, he is the most, I think, engaging and maybe most sympathetic bad guy in one of these movies that we've seen since maybe Loki. Uh, he is just, he comes to the table with genuine beef against the lead characters, a real reason to not to feel disenfranchised from the whole Wakandan legacy, even though he has a stake in it. Plus, he has a mission, which I think on a different kind of angle, a different perspective, could be really sympathetic. He wants to to arm and bring Wakandan technology to people who are powerless and allow them to rise up and make them be able to have an effect in their in their nations around the globe. There, there's a lot of argument for that kind of thing, and uh, and I think and then you combine that with Michael. Be Jordan's natural charisma and physicality in the part, and he is—he is, he is uh, maybe the most impressive character in the thing. Yeah, Michael B. Jordan is an actor who, uh, with every role, just you know, just digs in deeper and deeper. Uh, you know, he's able to balance likable and unlikable traits in equal measure in a way that a lot of actors can't do. It's. You know, one moment you, you kind of feel for the guy, and another moment you, you want to punch him in the face. Uh, but you know, he's he's always kind of got his back up, but he's got a reason to. So, you know, you ha- he kind of forces you to see things from his perspective, even if he's technically the bad guy. I mean, it's you know, he might be the best antagonist in the Marvel universe so far because he's not just, you know, blindly must conquer planet, must destroy Asgard. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like it's not like that at all. Um, you know, he's got real reasons for the way he feels and uh you know those need to be acknowledged even though uh the maybe his ego gets the better of him and and he's going about things kind of the wrong way and not being very diplomatic about wanting to take over this country but then uh, i don't know how you could be so uh you know it's it's probably you know the the most multifaceted villain of of this series and it may be you know i'm trying to think of another comic book villain that has or in terms of you know film adaptations of yeah i mean loki is the only one that i can think that i liked as much uh but you know what i come to him but loki kind of goes back and forth he's either like you know uh he's either just evil and funny or he's kind of like begrudgingly on the good one of the good guys and funny and whereas whereas you know uh, uh Killmonger is, uh, is uh, I guess, which is a name that comes from the comics, and they kind of use it without overusing it, which is, uh-huh. which is good because it sounds dopey if you say it too many times. Um, 
I don't know, chaotic neutral? No, he wouldn't be chaotic neutral. But but you know, like trying to think of like a D and D approximation because right. you know it's he's so complex that uh, you know I I want to return to this film and and see you know where certain character traits emerge over the course sure. of the film. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I know I've always I've been fond of of Jordan since The Wire, you know. And I look yeah. at his face and I see Wallace, and I, I, I have <laughs> yes. immediate uh, association there of positivity and affection. So, so you know, there's that. Um, I do want to say that I don't think that Black Panther is a perfect film. I think it falls down in some ways that a lot of Marvel movies fall down, which is an over reliance on CGI. Um, you know, I, I think Kugler handles a lot of the action scenes with with some grace, but I still feel like there's a lot of that sort of animated goop where I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just not yes. watching actual people here. So I'm, it's hard to be engaged. And that is something that happens over and over again with superhero movies. Uh, n- certainly not the first time here. And I just wish that they would find a way to try. I mean, I, I think the car chase in, in Busan is actually feels quite real to me. Those cars smashing. That's, felt that's like a real fantastic co- scene. Yeah. 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 But there's stuff towards the end where I'm just like, I'm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Where they're plunging into the mine. And yeah. There's, there's a, yeah, there's a few, I call them rubbery Spider-Man moments because there was, there were there. I mean, I think maybe Spider-Man, I can't remember which one, one, one of the Raimi's maybe where I first started to notice that there's like a delineated point where it goes from like obviously live action to obviously CGI. Yeah. And, you know, I try. I try not to look for them. I don't really want to notice them, but sometimes they're just painfully yeah, obvious. Yeah, and, and that's very much the case here. And also, I felt like okay, so the technology allows for like remote piloting of cars and planes, which is a really cool feature and makes a lot of sense. You know, I think about Iron Man remote piloting his suits. You yes. know, he's not really there, but it does take away some of the jeopardy if you know that the people who are in charge of these machines aren't is on in actually any danger because they're you know driving because they're driving from a planet away or something you know there's that kind of stuff which i don't know if it entirely again it it, it makes me it disconnects me a little bit from what i think is is the parts of of action sequences i like the most a sense that there's genuine stuff going on that you're in the middle of it and uh and it's not all being animated uh but those are fairly nitpicky things and small things compared to an overall feeling of a lot of fun with this film uh, and I think it, that's the thing. You balance the serious nature of the of the storyline and the characters and their needs with a sense of playfulness. Because, I mean, you're watching a superhero movie. You don't want it to be too much. I mean, the only movies for me that can get away with being super serious uh, in this genre are the Batman movies because his whole origin, everything <laughs> yes. about him is serious. So Yeah, you have fine. to see the Lego Batman if you want to get one with some humor. That's <laughs> exactly right, yeah, which, which they, you know, they do well enough, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, in Marvel, they have managed to find a tone somewhere in the middle and they continue to go from strength to strength on this. And uh, I got lots of time for these movies and I'm really glad to see that so many other people do too, that this this is a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, I you know, I'm, I'm still not... A huge fan of the Marvel Comics universe. I, I mean, I've seen every entry in it um, in terms of films. I haven't really bothered with many of the series. I think I watched a season of Daredevil and thought it was okay, but didn't feel the need to to keep going, even though I used to love that character in those comics, especially during the, the Frank Miller era. Um, you but, should see the second season when Electra plays a bigger part in the hand. I think you might enjoy it. Yeah, that's well, I guess it would be closer to the classic. It is. I, I heard so yeah. many mixed reviews of the second season. I kind of. I thought it was pretty and, good, and and Punisher as well shows up. So oh, perfect. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I I kind of like the standalone Marvel films that we've had to date, like 
like Ant-Man and Doctor Strange, just because any chance where they can stretch out and do something different and maybe not get so involved with the, the continuity happening outside, you know, like the fact that I could watch this Marvel film and not have to think about the Infinity Gauntlet <laughs> was was actually kind of refreshing. Like, oh, wait, how does that figure in again? Who's that Who's that guy from outer space? You know, like, I mean, obviously it's all very important in this summer. It all come together in Avengers Infinity War and which I guess will bring kind of the current era of a lot of these characters to a, to a close, at least for the actors playing them. But, but uh, you know, I, I kind of prefer the, the standalones and I don't have to worry about the, the continuity and so on. Although, as we should mention, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Black Panther, make sure you stay right through the end of the credits because, of course, it's a Marvel film. You probably don't need to be yeah, told this. that's but, right. You know, I, I have heard from people that there's a scene at the end. It's like, well... Uh, yeah, there's a scene at the end of every one of these, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, of course, it has to do with the bigger universe that is leading on to the next one on the list, which I think is uh, Avengers Infinity War due when, in May? I think like, so, so, yeah, yeah mid-May. Yeah, yeah, so, Memorial Day weekend, whenever so, that is. Um, yeah, it's... Um, it's it's a it's a really it's a really fun movie and I, I want to give a shout out now in, in terms of our focus on this uh, this this episode uh, Ryan Coogler's films definitely seek them out if you haven't seen Creed if you haven't seen Fruitvale Station they're amazing and he is amongst a handful of of high profile African American filmmakers of black filmmakers from globally in fact who are are you know, making a big splash uh, and they're crossing over and whose films are really getting recognized right now. And I, I'm just going to mention a few of their names. Obviously, Barry Jenkins, whose film Moonlight won the Best Picture Award at the Oscars last year. Ava DuVernay, whose Wrinkle in Time will be out soon. And, and Selma was a terrific film from mm-hmm. a few years ago. She's got a couple other films in her in her uh, catalog, I Will Follow in Middle of Nowhere, that are worth seeking out. Steve McQueen uh, from the UK, 12 Years a Slave, again, another Oscar-winning film. Uh, his Hunger, and two other films of his, Hunger and Shame, both of which I've seen and both of which yeah. I recommend largely. There's Lee Daniels, who did Precious and The Butler. And then there's a lot of journeyman directors who over the years have done great work. F. Gary Gray, uh, who recently did The Fate of the Furious. I'm not sure if I'd call that great work, but certainly popular work. Um, <laughs> it and, did what it had to do. Yeah, Anton Fuqua uh, directed Training Day and a lot of action movies, including the recent Magnificent Seven remake, which we talked about on this uh, this podcast. Right. Uh, Carl Franklin, Tim Story, John Singleton, uh, and uh, Dee Rees, whose new film Mudbound is getting a lot of attention. It's on Netflix uh, and I've heard that her 2011 lesbian drama, Pariah, is impressive. Tyler Perry is a phenomenon and a genre <laughs> unto himself. Like, that guy is incredible. He can do anything. Uh, I was trying to think of, of a, a filmmaker who's uh, – African-American filmmaker who's gotten a lot of attention and a lot of critical recognition over the years, but who we don't hear about as much lately. And I think that's probably Spike Lee, who is still making films all the time, but we don't get to see them in cinemas much anymore. And I'm wondering, like, I don't think the quality of his films has really diminished that much. The ones I've seen, I've liked, but uh, but for some reason, he's just not so much in the cultural conversation as he as he once was. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's a distribution thing. I don't I don't know what's happening and why those films are going more and more under the radar. Um, you know, usually uh, it would that he would make a project dear to his heart and then do something more commercial like the inside man and maybe he's just decided that that side of his career isn't worth it anymore i don't know uh you know usually what you know he'd make something like that or crooklyn or whatever and it would get a lot of attention then yeah. he'd go on to make something uh with um 
you know, maybe something a little more historical or, or something that he felt was important to be, that should be focused on. And, yeah, uh, Miracle of St. Annas. Yeah. That's one I thought about that was actually, was pretty good. I really liked uh, 25th Hour. That's going back to 2002. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he's still making films uh, and uh, he's got a couple more coming this year, something called Passover and then The Black Klansman. So he might have two features out this year. Uh, and he still makes documentaries as well, which I think uh, they do tend to be about uh, elements of uh, stories in African-American culture that he feels need to have attention brought to them. But yeah, I, I went back and just for the hell of it watched uh, Do the Right Thing Again and holy smokes, that's a terrific film. It really is. It's just like the energy and the anger and the frustration that boils over and he sustains that throughout this this incredible uh, crescendo at the end. Yeah, I actually remember seeing that at the Casino Theater on Gottagen Street. I think it was like the last film they played before they shut it down. I was like, they did the right thing, and then they did the wrong thing by closing that theater. So, uh, and it was, uh, you know, it was great to see that uh, in in such a, a vibrant uh, classic cinema with with an audience that could really relate to it. And uh, it's it, it's definitely one that I think. Uh, I mean, it's probably his best film, which is weird considering it's only his second feature but um but, i think actually or is it, it his third is it after third. school days yeah just school after days. school days which yeah. i also i saw a penhorn cinemas in dartmouth <laughs> a much different experience yeah. I, I actually really like school days it's a very different film it's a musical um which is maybe not what you expect from spike lee but um but even even films of his that are kind of reviled, like uh, there's one called I think Girl Six, and Prince did yeah. the soundtrack. Yeah, all B sides, Prince B sides. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of like that film. I, I mean, do too. Just, I mean, there's it, it's it's an oddball kind of romance uh, with a great female lead, and and uh, you know, and th- that's something else that he's also capable. Of. If you go back to She's Got to Have It, he's right. really good with female act- actors. And, he is, and you know, it's funny. She's Got to Have It has now been turned into a series, like it's been rebooted and yes. it's on Netflix, which I have not seen. But I, but yeah, I mean, there's there's one way that his his sort of cultural contribution is being revisited. The roots of African American filmmaking go back to the dawn of filmmaking itself. There's there's a lot of examples. Of, of silent films made by pioneers like uh, Oscar Michaud and and uh, and others who, who cater to a, a black audience in in rural America, largely through the South, but also in, in the larger urban centers. And those those are films that kind of faded into obscurity almost immediately after they came out, and then have more recently been discovered. In fact, uh, I believe that the uh, Kino Pioneers of African American Cinema set is uh, up on Netflix for viewing. You can actually see some of the films of Michaud and those who followed in his footsteps and, and came along uh, also with the independent film movement that blossomed in the, in the late 50s and through the 60s. But uh, the uh, the presence of, of black actors and black filmmakers really exploded in the 70s uh, with a, a combination of like studios trying to reach those urban marketplaces and also independent filmmakers like uh, Marvin Van Peebles or Melvin Van Peebles uh, kind of coming to the fore with Sweet Sweet Box badass song now that film was a huge hit it was made for a paltry sum really uh even though he had to get money from some other outside sources to kind of finish it up before release but um uh the the studios responded like they did with easy rider you know with a lot of cheaply made motorcycle pictures when uh, they saw how well sweetback did uh then we got the so-called exploitation era of the 1970s for better or for worse some of these films are great some of them are, are clearly cheap cash-ins, and uh, not many of them were actually made by uh, black filmmakers. This has really surprised me. I I just assumed, I sort of, my exposure to this was through friends over time, and I've 
I've seen a few of them, but uh, before, you know, researching for, for our conversation today. But uh, I didn't realize, like I expected, I was like, oh, here's my opportunity to watch a bunch of uh, Pam Greer films. I didn't, I'm expecting <laughs> that, you know, there'd be a, a black director there, but but in fact, that wasn't the case. Yeah, well, a lot of her films were made by a guy named Jack Hill, who, uh, you know, you'll probably hear Tarantino talk about him quite a bit. In fact, Tarantino re-released another one of his films called Switchblade Sisters, which he released or re-released to theaters through his uh, Rolling Thunder uh, film uh, distribution company, uh, which was short-lived. I think they only put out a handful of titles. Uh, Detroit 9000 was another really solid uh, black police drama. It's not even, you can't even really call it black exploitation because it was a, a serious drama, um, you know, dealing with real issues and, and not not meant to, for guns and gals and glory kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, Jack Hill, uh, another guy named uh, Arthur Marks, uh, M-A-R-K-S, uh, directed a number of films, and Larry Cohen, uh, who made Q the Winged Serpent, right, sure. <laughs> a number of the films. Uh, he did uh, Black Caesar and uh, the sequel Hell Up in Harlem, uh, inspired by uh, the gangster films of the 1930s. So basically he was doing uh, uh, remakes of Little Caesar and The Public Enemy, but with... Um, with uh, Fred the Hammer Williamson, I think, um, as his uh, as his main character, so uh, so th- there was definitely a cash in element, which kind of I don't know if it taints the history of these films. I mean, it was such a positive thing for black audiences to see people they recognized up on the screen and uh, see f- characters they could um, could relate to in a way, and uh, and and some of these films are really entertaining and watchable today and some of them are horribly dated and uh kind of painful to watch but the ones that are are great to watch are 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 still classics and um you watch shaft i have seen shaft a number of times i didn't re-watch it for this podcast but it was directed by gordon parks who uh, was a american photographer uh, who uh, spent some time overseas i think uh, he made a feature film while living in paris and he was uh, and he came back to america and then they got tagged to make Shaft and, uh, you know, a very, a very, um, educated and cultured guy, but, uh, really was able to dig his teeth into this, uh, this character played by Richard Roundtree as a uh, black private investigator in New York city. And it's, it's very gritty and very lively and has some great sequences. And it's, it's definitely, uh, earned its title as, as one of the best of the genre. Yeah. And I'd seen it before. So, so, you know, it was fun to revisit. I certainly like the look, the feel of it, the, the, the outfits, the costumes. I mean, that's some of the joy of the this. The genre is is uh, is the effort put into the the look and the characters. Uh, so the plotting sometimes is a I find either a little bit obvious or uh, you know it's it's action private detective stuff. Uh, it's it borrows some from noir, but uh, but uh, I. I like Shaft, and I, I really appreciate it. I read an article, uh, actually, I, I stumbled upon it uh, from NPR from, I think, five or six years ago, uh, comparing Shaft to um, uh, Ivan Dixon's Trouble Man. And, <laughs> yes, uh, which we will talk about. Yeah, yeah, and I, um, and I was like, okay, well, uh, I can see basically making the case that Trouble Man deserves its own cult the way Shaft has. I mean, Shaft was remade in 2000 with Sam Jackson. Shaft is another reboot of Shaft is being planned uh, with Sam Jackson again. Here we uh, go. Coming out either in 2018 or 2019. I actually um, didn't mind the remake. I was actually surprised. Uh, yeah, it's okay. I mean, Jackson's so watchable, uh, but I, I never wanted to go back and watch it, whereas with the original Shaft, I'd you know, be quite happy to go back and watch it. Uh, Trouble man which is a film i hadn't seen before 
Uh, I mean, there is an argument to be made that it deserves its own cult. It's a great little movie, and I was so impressed with with Ivan Dixon, and I realized that another movie you recommended, The Spook Who Sat by the Door, also directed by Ivan Dixon. I was like, this filmmaker is amazing. These are the <laughs> these are the best films from the genre that I've seen, and I was, was a little disappointed to find out these are right, basically his only feature films. He had a long career in television for the next twenty years after these movies were made in the early seventies, but uh, but this is pretty much it as far as his cinematic contribution and uh yeah but trouble man is uh i don't know if we want to do we want to get into trouble man now do you want to get talk about the well, spook who sat by the door well, let's talk well trouble man came first right okay sure and um yeah so uh, ivan dixon most people i mean now anybody who remembers ivan dixon will remember him as the very cool character kinch on hogan's heroes right he was an actor too he was an actor initially and he was like the sole black cast member of hogan's heroes which is I mean, you know, at least they had the foresight to include one. And in fact, I saw the pilot episode of Hogan's Heroes, which was in black and white. The rest of the series was in color. But there's a black and white pilot where there was also a Russian character. And they decided that that might be too controversial or they might, you know, there might be a temptation to to delve into Cold War humor. Because sometimes they would, uh, not that Hogan's Heroes reflected its times, because it's a woefully anachronistic film or a TV comedy series about, you know, the, the jovial life of Second World War German prisoners of war or American prisoners of war in German camps. But uh, but he always seemed, he seemed like a very modern dude. Um, you know, he, he didn't really have period hair or anything like that. And um, he, he was definitely, the, the, just seemed like a naturally cool guy on this very kind of square and weird uh, sitcom about prisoners of war. Uh, and then, you know, years later, I found out that he became a director, that, you know, acting wasn't really his his real passion. And then he made these two features, uh, two very different films. Um, but uh, but I guess I do have some connections. So, so Trouble Man was really hard to find for a long time. It eventually did come out on DVD, especially when um, more of these uh, black action films of the 70s started rolling out and, and the studio started you know, actually doing proper transfers and restoring them and all this kind of stuff and getting them out there. And there are a slew of them, ones that were not known at all, things like like Monkey Hustle, for example, or, or Trick Baby, films that deserve to be uh, seen but maybe weren't as well remembered. But Trouble Man, uh, for the most part, lived on in people's memories because it had a great score by Marvin Gaye, and, uh, the, uh, and which is also probably the reason why it sat on the shelf for so long because of the music rights issues. You know, Marvin Gaye and Motown, that means there's probably some substantial uh, royalty payments that have to be made, but eventually it did come out. In fact, there's, there's now been a new uh, Blu-ray through Kino Lorber have, have got it out uh, digitally. But um, it's 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 an interesting film in that it's uh, again it's directed by Dixon. It's it's set in a kind of the urban Los Angeles community, and and Robert Hooks plays kind of like a fix-it man. I, I guess ostensibly he's a bail bondsman, um, you know, who helps people who are on the hook for. For bail and need to get out of jail or whatever, but uh, but he's also a pool hustler, yeah. uh, sort of know. a community activist. He steps in exactly. when people need help. Exactly, he's he's kind of you know people come to him. He's he's almost he's kind of like a low level uh, street godfather, if you will, and people come to him looking for solutions. And he he seems to have quite a quite a deep conscience and you know wants to improve his community. And I think that's probably what attracted uh, Dixon to the story that he wasn't like a pimp or a pusher. Um, 
you know, like that's one of the things about Superfly that can be hard to take now that he's a heroic drug pusher. <laughs> and of course, the whole point of the film is him trying to get out of the game. Right. Um, and that's actually, oddly enough, directed by Gordon Parks Jr., the son of the director of Shaft, which gives a weird tie between Superfly and, and Shaft. But but here he's, he's, he's um, you know, he's an above the board, legit operator who, uh, you know, pl- Plays by the plays by his own set of rules and is an honorable guy, and he's being set up for a fall by some uh, some low rent uh, hoods who uh, want to take him down for reasons which aren't initially clear. I think they just want to use him as a fall guy for yeah. some people they want to get out of the way. Um, and then you get you know you get the sort of the cops who aren't necessarily crooked, but they're not exactly not exactly helpful. They're more these very antagonistic uh, police officers as well. And 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 Hooks, as you as you mentioned to me, he's kind of a one note character. He's very kind of you know very stiff upper lip and and um, grim uh, going about his business. But he you know he's that's his persona. He's got to he's got to be a cool dude. You know, Mr. T. <laughs> he's the original Mr. T. That's yeah, that's, that's actually right. what people call him in the film. And uh, I think there's even like a song on the soundtrack called Mr. T, sung by Marvin Gaye. Um, but, you know, I like the fact that he's a straight up operator and isn't like a a player and or a, a stereotype or anything like that. And so that's kind of what carries you through the film is his uh, very, it's, his portrayal is a bit rigid. He's not as, as cool as Richard Roundtree's Shaft. But uh, but you've got to give him his respect. Yeah, yeah, and he is. You, you do got to give him his respect, and he navigates this story. Even though, as an audience member, we're a little ahead of him in terms of what the plot against him is, uh, and that's I think takes away some of the suspense of the thing. I still really enjoyed how it goes about, how he comes, he pieces it together, and then he finally begins to take down the people who uh, who have you know wronged him and uh, it leads to this uh, terrific action sequence towards the end i mean this is a really satisfying film and i i, I really like trouble man um yeah and i i was really impressed that dixon's other film the spook who sat by the door which came out the year after uh uses a lot of the same actors uh and but is entirely different. Like I'm not even sure if I would qualify it as an exploitation film. It, it's in any way. really not. It's like a drama that it turns out. It's it a starts, political drama. Yeah, yeah, it starts as sort of a satire. It's satirizing both white stereotypes and black stereotypes. Where this this uh, um, basically a uh, a senator wants to get reelected, so he sponsors an effort to integrate. Uh, African American men, all all of the men, yeah, of into the CIA, which is notoriously entirely white, uh, and the the black candidates train for ex- acceptance, but the best of the bunch knows that they're that he's just there as a token, and he sort of seems to accept it. He's sort of a straight edge, a straight arrow guy, uh, but then we learn that he's. Um, you know, his ambitions are much broader than that. He resigns from the CIA and he takes what he's learned in the five years of training that they've given him and he applies it instructing militant black youth in Chicago to sort of foment an uprising. So what it starts as kind of a satire with these broad stereotypes becomes sort of a manifesto. If, if you want to be really free, if you want black nationalism, then here is the path. And wow, man, it is intense. <laughs> like I am, I am not surprised that there was some controversy around this film when it was released back in 1973. Yeah, and it's based on a novel by Sam Greenlee, who also wrote the screenplay. So I guess, uh, I guess, Trouble Man did well enough that that uh, Dixon was able to get some some financing for this film. It wasn't made. I mean, Trouble Man was a 20th Century Fox release. Uh, uh, I. I can't see 20th Century Fox releasing the spook who sat by the door. And we should we should point out that, uh, of course, 
a spook is a racial epithet, which is not something you would use in daily language. But of course, it's also uh, a uh, code word for a CIA operative, right? You know, and and uh, so it it has kind of a double meaning here. It's it's not a word we love using, but it is the title of the film, and and of course, the film does play up that double meaning to to great effect. So. Its uh, its use is very effective here, but not not a. And in fact, wasn't there a, a UK show with a similar title, and they changed it to MI5 for North America yeah. for that very reason? Yeah, yeah. But um, but here it's you know it's the it's being used for a reason and and very effectively uh, for both the novel and the film. And um, it's it's funny that watching the trailers on the DVD that I have for this, uh, you know, Ad- Adolf Caesar. Uh, who was so memorable in a, a soldier's story about black so- murder amongst black soldiers in the 1940s, and he was the kind of the tough drill sergeant. But he also had this career doing voiceovers for all these trailers, and his voice is instantly recognizable. And just hearing him like just chew out that title of that gruff voice, it's, it's pretty great. Um, yeah, I was really impressed also by the Herbie Hancock score. Yes, that's the other the, the other strong aspect yeah, of this I mean, film. These, a lot of these films have amazing musical contributions by iconic African-American musicians, and this is no no different. Uh, I also appreciated that the spook who sat by the door is subtly connected to Black Panther, which we started the talking about. Yes. Uh, it name-checks Dahomey, which is an African nation that once stood where modern-day Benin can be found, and it was conquered by the French in the 19th century, but it had a battalion of female soldiers called the Dahomey Amazons, and they are based on uh, that that story and that uh, bit of history is what inspired Black Panther's personal guard. Yeah, so I'm sure Kugler has seen this film and <laughs> probably read the book. There's, there was another film around the same time, which I think is only just surfaced on home video and other, from other sources, called The Man, which I think... I think might have starred uh, James Earl Jones. Uh, it's a 70s sort of, not futuristic, but it's about the first black president. And it's called The Man. And, and um, again, it, it's very much in this mode where it's, it's a serious black drama um, about uh, political issues that has a bit of that sort of radical feel. Um, but again, not exploitative, more... Um, uh, uh, not inquisitive, but speculative. There we go. Okay. About what might happen if that were ever to come to pass. And of course, uh, it eventually, actually I have the novel at home um, and and uh, what kind of strife and struggle that might cause. So it'd be interesting to rewatch that film and, and see how it contrasts with what happened when Barack Obama actually did come into office and and uh, see see how things line up. I'm sure there's a lot of, I'm sure they, they quite play into the radical right uh, in that 70s way in that film as well but uh but this, this film was phenomenal lawrence cook who stars as the, the agent who becomes the uh the underground revolutionary is, is is quite good he gives a very subtle almost a quiet performance which is you know he, he's you know he does have these great uh dynamics in his acting i think he he's probably a stage guy probably originally um but he just has a lot a lot of control in his performance, and and we, you know, if you go through his filmography, he does work pretty steadily after this, but you don't really see him in a lot of lead roles. So, mm-hmm. and I like Jay Preston, who plays his buddy in the on the the police force. He's an actor who I was like, why is he so familiar <laughs> yes, to me? So many things, so many things, and I realized that the my my number one uh, recognition for me, uh, and in terms of his work, was uh, Body Heat. He was the cop in Body Heat who uh, who's right. a buddy with William Hurt's character and a 
eventually has to like come to terms with the fact that uh, that he is you know his buddy is a a suspect in this case and he's really good in that. Uh, but his face and his voice felt it was just like oh this guy has such a presence on screen he's great. Um, so yeah, I mean it's a it's it's a really good film. I, I was so glad that you you suggested that we watch it because I I really liked it. Uh, the only other one from the black exploitation era that I was able to catch up with, uh, and it is very different. The opposite side of the spectrum <laughs> I is, think I know where we're going. is Dolomite yes. <laughs> from '75. Now Rudy Ray Moore wasn't unfamiliar to me. I certainly knew about him. Uh, this is a film that uh, it has a real cult following. Uh, I think if you came to it not knowing that, you'd be like, what is going on? with this guy like he's 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 in his late 40s when this film is made he's he's kind of this barrel chested dude he gets out of jail and he goes back to the pimping life uh and he's trying to find out why his neighborhood is bad with gangs and guns and uh but he seems like such an unlikely badass like he's (laughs) you know he's supposed to have like some karate skills but they're a little a little weak uh he but you know uh he builds this whole he has this magnetism and he builds this whole myth around himself which uh is pretty entertaining i i I guess you could make a case for rudy ray moore being perhaps the uh, african-american ed wood uh because he you know he just wanted to make these films uh you know they're they're cheaply made uh they're kind of rough around the edges there are a lot of boom mics and shots and yeah i noticed and, that and, too. and you know they're not well edited or anything like that but they have so much energy and he just like he just bears down and gives it his all in every performance and he, he includes like some of his oddball friends just come on and do like bits for the camera in between scenes you know like uh, there's a guy, a character called the Hamburger Pimp, who just kind of shows up, uh, probably because he was a friend and he promised him a role in the film and that kind of thing. There's, there's, there's actually like kind of a community feel about this this movie. I mean, Rudy Ray Moore was a was a, a comedian on the Chitlin circuit, and uh, you know who's known for kind of rough and rowdy comedy bits and making these kind of X-rated comedy records. He actually has a Christmas record uh, along the lines of like "This Ain't No White Christmas," Whoa. and it's. It's it's out there, uh, and uh, but and he came up with this character Dolomite. Um, now I came to Rudy Ray Moore's work completely cold, like I didn't know anything about him when I saw Avenging uh, Disco Godfather, which I guess uh, which I guess was called the Disco Godfather when it came out in the late seventies when disco was on the wane. Then it got reissued as the Avenging Godfather, and then on video it became the Avenging Disco Godfather. Just so anybody who saw it under the other titles would know what film it was, I guess, and uh, where he's. Uh, He's kind of like a an ex-cop turned community activist who's trying to get angel dust out of the community. But he's also a uh, a hotshot uh, disco DJ who runs a club <laughs> and uh, and and kung fu expert. Um, and uh, you know, you just watch that film going, "This is amazing!" <laughs> like I like I, I I just in my mind I could not imagine this film getting made. But yet Rudy Ray Moore went out and made these films. You know, with these. You know, just with a with a high concept, and there, there's a couple other ones like the I think the Devil's Son-in-Law, which is more based on kind of old country folk tales, and it's more more about humor than action. But um, you know, he made uh, made two Dolomite films. Um, you know, which uh, later I was sort of got more informed about them. Uh, the Beastie Boys used to name check Dolomite in lyrics quite a bit. They were uh-huh. obviously big fans of these movies, and uh, and the, the the Beastie Boys briefly published a fanzine called uh, Grand Royale, I think, named after its label, the, the record label. And uh, they one of the issues had a big article on Rudy Ray Moore and the Dolomite legacy. And that was the first time I got to read something sort of in-depth on him and how he just made these films on his own and they made a 
ton of cash that were hugely popular. Um, a lot of it is based on stuff he did in his stage act, which is why he already had kind of a ready built audience for these movies. Um, you know, and they they were you know just low budget distribution. Uh, they may have even just kind of played one town at a time. I don't really know how they got out there. Uh, I don't think they ever made it up this way, but uh, but the cult following. Uh, was there from the very start and uh, he just kind of played into that made sure there was lots of lots of fighting lots of violence lots of nudity uh you know he knew his audience really well apparently but it was just him and his friends who made these films um uh i know there's a a queen bee like a a a madam who shows up at one point with her kind of harem of prostitutes but she was played by a fellow comedian that he obviously either toured with or they were friends from from the circuit and so it's kind of cool and I've seen records by her where she's doing her comedy act, so that's kind of cool. Um, and I actually have an original poster for Dolomite. I have the original one-sheet poster that I scored years and years and years ago. And it's just with his his uh, his army, his all-girl army of kung fu killers, <laughs> um, <laughs> sort of prominently displayed on on the poster. So it's uh, yeah, the, the the you know the cheerful enthusiasm of those films. It's 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 hard to deny the the power of that over the. You know, over the kind of low budget aspects of them, they're 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 still pretty charming and pretty pretty in your face. So the first American feature film written, directed, and produced by an African American woman that got uh, theatrical distribution was Daughters of the Dust from 1991, and this is on uh, Netflix. I was quite pleased to find it there. This is an impressively idiosyncratic first feature. I I uh, I found it, uh, I struggled to get around sort of the, uh, uh, I guess, the nonlinear aspects of the narrative, but I really appreciated the sort of spell that this this film casts. Uh, It's set in 1902. It tells the story of the Pizant family, all of whom are about to leave a remote island off Georgia where they've managed to retain much of their culture the ancestors brought with them from Africa. Um, The idea is that going to the mainland, they'll be able to embrace the future, embrace change. What the film seems mostly concerned about is that struggle between tradition embodied by the great-grandmother, Nana, played by Cora Lee Day, who does not want to leave the island and doesn't plan to, and the new century, the new world. Uh, There are other struggles, too, between men and women. Uh, There's this, uh, it starts with with a little bit of uh, voice over in in uh, in Arabic, uh, you know, uh, a nod to Islam, and uh, and then but there's also characters who embody uh, sort of Christian aste- aesthetics and Christian values. Um, there's technology versus the old way of doing things. Um, I, I read a review that described the film as impressionistic, which I really think is a good word oh, for very what, much so, what it yeah. is. There's, it's not so much about plot; uh, it's more about character about costume about location which is gorgeous and that uh, sort of early 90s ambient score that sort of seeps through everything yeah it's i mean it, it's interesting that it's it set in in the early 1900s and yet it feels like a film of its time of the early 1990s it, yes. there's, there's a lot of aspects of it i don't i don't know that a film like this would get made today at least not in the same way no um, well julie dash who directed it she went on to have a career in television but i don't think she ever really was able to capitalize despite the critical acclaim this film received on on having a film career yeah she made a quite good uh, biopic of rosa parks uh-huh. starring i think angela bassett maybe i might have that okay. wrong um uh, you know, and has done a lot of great work. Uh, but this film really made a mark, and I, I I remember this film coming out. I remember Siskel and Ebert really going to bat for it, which I think helped it in a big way in terms of finding an audience. 
um, beyond the the festival crowd because obviously this this had a big uh, run at film festivals, um, but also uh, did well commercially on the on the rep house circuit. And um, I, I suspect that theatrically would be the best way to see it because it is something you need to kind of retain focus on. It's it's uh, it's a it's a bit of a meandering film. It's a very poetic film. Uh, it's uh, the, the spoken word and the languages and, and sorry and the images aren't always connected and and uh, it's you know when you're sitting on your couch at home in broad daylight it's it's not the kind of film that you can easily maintain focus on but it it does pay rich rewards in in, in being this very uh, fully developed look at life for uh, rural uh, black uh, farmers and, and and families who aren't that far removed from the era of slavery there there are there are members of the family who were slaves and others who, you know, maybe were born after the Civil War, but, you know, at least have known others who have been through that, that horrible experience. Uh, and then um, another still who, who have even maybe vague memories of, of Africa and having come across the Atlantic on a slave ship. So you've got multi-generate, you've got great-grandmothers and, and, and great-granddaughters, and, and you've even got one character who's a, a child yet to be born who appears throughout the film as kind of a ghostly image of a girl uh, who also speaks in voiceover because she's kind of telling the story based on her memories and what's been passed down. So that adds to the impressionistic feel of it uh, and actually adds a touch of magic realism to it as well on top of everything else. So it's a very multi-layered film. And... Uh, and interestingly enough, one of the characters, uh, Yellow Mary, at one point in the film, talks about, uh, you know, the whole family's talking about going up north. The, the film is kind of s essentially based around the day that they're leaving. They're going to get on a ship uh, or a boat and sail to the mainland and make their way north, presumably to industrial, perhaps New York or Baltimore or, you know, a large center above the Mason-Dixon line and, and start a new life for themselves which of course is what the, a lot of the causes a lot of the conflict between the characters and uh, but uh, yellow mary has dreams of going even further to a place called nova scotia oh yes <laughs> and uh, and there's there's a scene where she and and two other women are talking about it and, and it's, it's, uh, she's talking about this place like she's she's almost dreamed about it she, the name has seems kind of magical to her and you know of course you know you you're watching this film, uh, not expecting a local reference because it's, it seems like such a foreign place. These islands off of South Carolina, this beautiful, you know, there's, there's actually palm trees on, on in some of the scenes. And then uh, somebody who lives in this paradise dream, is dreaming of coming here to Nova Scotia. And you're kind of thinking like, no, oh, stay there. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it looks, war, it's warm it's there. It's warm there, yes. But, 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 you know, she's heard stories of... of People either escaped slaves or, um, you know, freed freed uh, servants who maybe lived in the north when slavery was uh, was um, eliminated, who have made their way there, and uh, so it it does seem like kind of a kind of a utopia of some sort yeah. uh, in her mind. Yeah, and it's interesting this whole like uh, rural African American experience, which. Uh, uh, is is uh, revisited uh, in Eve's Bayou from 1997. This is another film that yes. uh, Roger Ebert really liked, and uh, it's directed by Cassie Lemon, who wrote and directed a sprawling story of these uh, a black family in Louisiana in 1962. Uh, and it's about the Sam Jackson plays a philandering doctor, uh, and it's about how the rest of the family deal with his behavior and. Uh, 
there's and it's it's told from the perspective of the daughter played by uh, Journey Smollett Bell, and uh, it's really a lovely film. It's funny. It's it's deeply pitched into melodrama, but it's wildly entertaining stuff. And I really love the the little girls. Um, she's I guess about eleven or twelve in the film, and her her performance is amazing. That has it has that southern family drama aspect with a lot of women. Uh, the cast largely women doing great work and uh, the first line in the film one of the first lines is the summer I killed my father I was 12 like this is <laughs> you know you're you're hooked when the yes. first when that's the line you know so uh, anyone who might be looking for something in this line uh, uh, to see I think Eve's Bayou is, is still holds up and it's uh, it's out there and very much worth seeing this yeah anyway so I just found it interesting these stories of um, <clears throat> of these uh, African-American uh, filmmakers telling stories uh, period dramas uh, from much more rural perspective versus the urban perspective. It's a great film. I've not seen it since it came out, and it is something I would like to return to because I just I have fond memories of, of just the look and the feel of the film, and just being it really does create a, a world on screen. That's that's something that's you know in, in the distant past, but yet still feels very real. Um, and we are kind of quickly running out of time, and 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 another film that kind of ties into this, which is actually a documentary. It's not a it's not a dramatic film, but um, uh, it's it's rare that we get to be timely with uh, Lens Me Your Ears because, of course, things get recorded and they get put online, and sometimes people don't listen to them until weeks or months after we actually record them. So we we try not to get too uh, wrapped up in, in, in events that are happening as we're doing it. But if you're listening to this on the live broadcast on CKDU 88.1 FM or uh, happen to um, maybe, maybe it'll actually get posted, <laughs> probably unlikely, but... Um, uh, you know, or or have an urge to see these films. Uh, the Halifax Black Film Festival is happening this weekend, last weekend uh, or the first weekend in March of 2018, and uh, there's a number of films being screened around Halifax, uh, the Spats Theater at Pier 21 at Park Lane, and uh, the opening film is a documentary, a new documentary that hasn't uh, really been seen uh, in many places. It's called The Rape of Reese Taylor, and. Um, it's, it's about a woman in 1944 in rural Alabama who was uh, gang-raped at gunpoint by six white men who forced her into the car, into their car and took her into the woods. And the, the, what's unique about this case, because, of course, this was, even in Daughters of the Dust, they talk about, you know, you know uh, women getting assaulted is as common as fish in the sea, I think, is, uh-huh. is, is the line from Daughters in the Dust. So here we have a real-life portrayal of what happened. Um, except she stood up to her accusers. She named them. She she wanted to go all the way to court and um, and uh, and you know faced uh, well. She faced being killed. You know they, they firebombed her house at one point. Uh, the sheriff of the town was sort of a distant relative. They they actually had the same name last name because his family had owned members of her family. So there's this very odd uh, uh, kind of dynamic happening there as well. And, uh, and then uh, Rosa Parks, uh, who had only recently joined the NAACP, comes to town to, to help her out and help her get this case to court and also to help <laughs> hide her and save her life. So it's, it's, a, it's very dramatic and very compelling. And, and Reese Taylor and just died a few months ago, just after Christmas of 2017. So it, it's still, even though it's to some people ancient history, Reese Taylor has been with us up until last year. And, uh, and Oprah mentioned her in her Golden Globe speech uh, last month uh, and talked about her at length, actually, about her struggle and what she went through to find justice, uh, which took so long to, to come, and, and, and why you know, it kind of brought some prominence to Rosa Parks well before the whole uh, 
uh, sitting at the front of the bus incident kind of put her in the national headlines. Uh, this was a, uh, an issue that brought her to prominence. And it's a very powerful uh, documentary. If you get a chance, it's, it's playing Friday night at 7 o'clock at the Spatz Theater. Uh, and it's well worth seeing or seeing at some point further down the road. I'm sure it'll be available through other sources. The, the people who have made it have made some other powerful films about uh, Jesse Owens and the murder of Emmett Till and the Freedom Riders. They have a pretty great pedigree, and it, it really comes to bear in this film. Yeah, it's a strong film. You can you can really see how – I wouldn't be surprised to see it be turned into a, a – a, a feature film at some point this story because it is it's well done and uses a lot of original footage and uh, and uh, uh, f- photographs of from the di- the of the characters the people in the story and yeah it's 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 very much worth seeing um, now the Halifax Black uh, Film Festival also will include a screening of Black Cop if anyone missed it at the Atlantic Film Festival uh, last uh, last year uh, Corey Bowles uh, drama. Uh, is going to be playing and it's uh, it's also very much worth seeing in cinemas with an audience it's a a, a powerful piece of work that uh, that uh, i gather Corey has found uh, distribution in the states for so uh, this is this is really good news for a local filmmaker yeah it's playing sunday night at park lane it's it's worth seeing on a big screen it's it's uh, you know he's 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 done a number of short films and has been kind of developing his style and and the film was shot very much guerrilla style on the streets of Halifax. I got to spend a day on the set where they were shooting in near the grain elevators, and, and it, it had a really great kind of street level feel to uh, to what he did uh, with this film. It's actually a remake of a short film that he made, and here he's expanded it and and um, expanded on the story, made it a lot richer, and given the main character uh, more of a backstory and some some stronger motivations, and pretty much improved it in every way. And um, you know, as this this black officer uh, basically takes out one of his fellow officers who's trying to frame some kids for for a drug deal, um, and then he starts uh, basically acting the way that uh, white police officers have been acting in the United States in a lot of ways, and and in this country too, um, of course. Um, and so it, it kind of takes the the Black Lives Matter message to heart and kind of turns it on its head in a way. It's almost, I mean, you know, he. When I've talked to Corey, I talk about kind of almost like a Twilight Zone-y aspect to the story. He kind of agrees, but but it's so grounded in reality that you don't think of it as any kind of fantasy or revenge fantasy or anything like that. It's just it's just kind of real life reaching the boiling point, I guess. And and it's it's a very powerful film. And and Ronnie Rowe Jr., who plays the black cop of the title, uh, delivers a, a really great performance. <laughs> So before we wrap up our look at uh, African-American filmmakers and their work, um, I wanted to mention a couple of African-Canadian filmmakers. uh, And, uh, you know, we have seen some great work by a number of of, uh, black filmmakers here in Canada through the years. Uh, Certainly, I'm a big fan of Clement Virgo's Poor Boys Game, which was shot here in Halifax. Um, and uh, I also really liked Across the Line from director X, who is mostly known for his video work. He he directed um, uh, a Hotline Hotline Bling video for Drake, uh, but he's in the middle of doing a Superfly remake right now, which I guess we shouldn't be surprised uh, to hear. But um, Across the Line he made in 2015, and it's a story of a hockey phenom and from Dartmouth who gets scouted by the NHL and then has to deal with the the pressure of keeping his nose clean in high school uh, over in Dartmouth, uh, where there is a number, there's serious racial tensions. It's a film that's uh, that's definitely worth checking out. Yeah, and of course that is rooted in, in real life. Uh, there was a, a, a 
racial tension at Coal Harbor High when uh, when I was growing up, and uh, it was quite a this is a bit of a standoff, and it's quite a vivid uh, event in my memory that uh, was interesting to see it transformed into the, into dramatic form in in such an effective way, and and those will definitely be. Um, Definitely be filmmakers to watch. I'm yeah. interested to see what Clement Virgo comes up with because he's a very interesting director who never really makes the same film twice. He always kind of goes off in different directions and and has a has a real real interesting visual eye for sure. I hope you enjoyed this uh, wide ranging but hardly comprehensive look at uh, African North American filmmakers and 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 work that spreads from the days of silence to to modern we just uh, modern scratched, videos. We just scratched the surface. We just kind of we just kind of jumped in, and and in fact, like I do recommend checking out some of those the, the African American filmmaker pioneer uh, films on on Netflix, Daughters in the Dust, and 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 Mudbound, which of course is is uh, still a very current film. Uh, I've been Stephen Cook, and uh, I'm an arts writer here in Hell. Uh, and I'm Karsten Knox. I write uh, about film on my blog, Flaw on the Iris, at uh, halifaxbloggers.ca. You can find us online at, uh, well, we have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter account at, at LendsMeYourEars. And uh, also you can uh, try and email us at uh, LendsMeYourEarsPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we'll get around to checking it one of these days. <laughs> uh, and we keep saying that. We keep saying that. I have a... I have a I'm, I'm sure that the powers that be will tell us if anything scintillating comes into the inbox. And um, I'm on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I'm uh, also at Flaw in the Iris. Uh, we're also on Facebook if you want to find us there. Thanks again to the folks at CKDU 88.1 FM who let us use their fabulous production facilities and air us every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. And also the Village Soundcast Network who put all the bells and whistles on the episode after we've recorded our, our fabulous voices. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 